this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. everybody you're listening to the grand podcast abyss i'm your co-host john pastelli and i'm here with the meister singer and the guru of chew sam worthington yeah and i'm here with the underground king of uh, tumblr blog posts john pastelli and we're here um we're here on a rather somber day there's an invasion in europe um but a day of um with many, many things to talk about, many different ways in and out of these conversations. And I think right today, John, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your reactions, reflections, and insights that you've been posting on on the Tumblr blog post, uh, Grand Hotel Abyss, as uh, this Russian invasion has um, has been going on throughout the week, and use that as a grounds for our conversation and and try to unearth the maybe some literary dimensions, um, philosophical dimensions, maybe even some historical dimensions if if we can um, um, sift through our fuzzy recall. Yeah. But, uh, so, <laughs> yeah you, so you wrote this this week, and what was your intention in, in, in writing and responding to what's been going on? Well, I'm fascinated by, you know, I'm not a historian or a political scientist or military strategist, so I can't make contributions to the discourse in that way. Um, But I am interested in the way that this sudden event, well, it's been building up for a while, but it, it sort of exploded this week, has led to some ideological ferment, some ideological shifts and needs for configurations in the way we have been thinking about nations and empires and races and militaries and and all of these subjects. And I've been interested in the ways that people are and are not responding to that, the way that some people, it seems like a lot of people just um, have replied with ready-made ideas they already had. Like, for instance, I quoted a feminist philosopher who attributed this crisis to toxic masculinity, Mm. which I thought was maybe true in some metaphysical sense, I suppose, but not really a very relevant thing to Mm -hmm. say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And another person who spoke of whiteness, which I think is completely ahistorical and is not really the the whole issue about Russia is its conflict within itself about whether it would be a Western power or an Eastern power and some American imposition of an ideology of whiteness really Mm -hmm. isn't relevant. It's just narcissistic American discourse. So I've been been kind of just taking uh, shots at people who have not been able to rise to this occasion, not that I can rise to it myself necessarily. Well, what's remarkable about what's remarkable about what's been going on. And I have um, fidelity and, and sympathies with the Ukrainian people, um, and so I'm. I'm. I'm root, now is the time to root for Ukrainians. For me to 
to root for them to prevail and be brave. But what's but that's that's the real, as Jacques Lacan might put it, the capital R real. That's that's life and death and um, organism moving through environments of hostility and stress. And but here in the here in the West, we we are more in the symbolic and, and in this ideological struggle that has taken a, a new turn. Yeah, there's new scenery around it. What's remarkable for me is ideas that sounded that sounded naive and manipulative a week ago are now sounding more relevant and responsible. Ideas that made sense a week ago or even two weeks ago, which sounded like the appropriate critique of the American establish, establishment, now sound irresponsible, dangerous, and and potentially traitorous. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but sure. But that's the that's <laughs> that's the reception. Those ideas are not. Yeah. And they, and yeah. been, for example, for example, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's paranoia about Russia in 2016 now makes more sense. And people who mm-hmm. who were or Romney's in 12. Yeah, in and all, all yeah. of Rom. Yeah, that makes yeah. more sense. And it seems they knew things we didn't know. They understood the situation in ways we didn't. Critiques about American globalism, NATO encroachment, Biden corruption, critiques from MAGA nationalists, from from Darren Beatty and, and Posobiec and and that crew of America first Republicans, critiques that made a lot of sense about China, about Russia, should we make an alliance with them, about um, the impotence of the American military and its corruption by by woke elements. Those critiques don't sound as convincing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those guys know it. I think so. I mean, I, I, I take maybe, I'm going to take a slightly more nuanced approach to that. Sam and I are going to disagree. It's going to be like the old CNN crossfire. Um, so my reading of the, of the MAGA people is that they are, I, I think you said earlier before we were on air in over their heads. And I think they are, and I think they sound a bit, um, I think what I said earlier was they're in the position the radical left used to be, which is what they occasionally make a good negative point, but you wouldn't trust them with anything uh, mm. because they don't seem to have a positive governing strategy. Um, and and to the extent that we can say that the Trump administration did good things in foreign policy, I suspect it wasn't coming from them, it wasn't coming from that crew in particular. Um, I think the stuff about Biden corruption in Ukraine how that plays into this remains to be seen. I think there probably was some irresponsibility there. Um, there probably was a bit of, you know, the American elite using the Ukraine in a kind of parasitic way mm-hmm. that, um, that might have, uh, it doesn't, you know, nothing. Here's, here's the problem. We always get into a thing about if you want, try to explain how something happened, it sounds like you're excusing a malefactor. And we don't want to do that. There's no, uh, there's no, mm-hmm excuse for uh, uh, aggressive war, for imperial war. There's no positive thing to be said about Putin here. Um, But, you know, you can talk about uh, the context. And so it can also, though, sound a bit irresponsible to talk about the context sort of in the moment. It's kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. a read the room situation. So in that sense, they have the kind of impotency of the people who are out of power and just taking these pot shots. Mm -hmm. but there has there has been some, and I'm I'm mostly objective, um, in a position of mostly objective analysis, trying to mm-hmm. 
perceive the perceptions yeah. or perceive how the event has changed the perceptions. Mm-hmm. There's my own belief in NATO and Ukraine and, and, and that's there and, and informs uh, my, my current opinions. But even if we, if we took, if we took that objective analysis, isn't, aren't some of these reversals stunning? These people who were objects of ridicule and conspiracy, neo-McCarthyists, mm-hmm. impotent Democrats, people like Samantha Power, Ambassador Daniel Freed, um, uh, Ben, um, who was Obama's uh, Rhodes, Ben Rhodes, David Frum, Bill Crystal, oh Jesus, um, <laughs> these these people who Atlantic Council mm-hmm. fellows, mm-hmm. these people who it was so easy for. Uh, uh, Obama into Trump, it was so easy, and especially with with Clinton, it was so easy for us to call all, all of that his, histrionic and and paranoid and signs of a decaying empire. And that crew, it, haven't you noticed that that crew, because of these events, have been exalted in a place of almost of 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 commander like responsibility and prudence, like and almost some stoicism in that they endured the critiques of the cynical, uninformed, but powerless, um, right-wing, left-wing, conspiratorial bunch for years, and that they always knew what was right, and that, thank God, that they still have the levers of, of control on financial, military, and, and technological, political power, and that we'll, and we'll continue to cede it to them in that class of educated elites because of the, the real threat that they've always known about that we cynically um, and with maybe the because of the manipulation of that threat through cyber propaganda um, could not lost we well, lost our patriotism. Okay, there's a lot there. <laughs> so let me uh, let me back up. So Sam explained some of his allegiances. Let me tell you where I'm coming from uh, in this conversation. So I am uh, 40 years old. Just turned 40 years old, uh, and. I came of political age. That was a question, by the way, when I what I just said. Oh, I'm going to answer it. Yeah. I'm going to answer it. <laughs> I'm just going to try to very carefully justify my no. <laughs> because, because people with your opinion, and this illustrates my point, and I'm not trying to win, but people with, with those opinions right now, there's something pressing down on them. Yes, I and, feel it. And people, and, and I'm trying to exalt people with the opinions I sort of, Implied there, yeah. Not that I totally endorse one hundred percent. Yeah. There's something lifting those opinions up. Sure. There's something lifting them up. Sure. Well, I hope we can get to a place where it's not about me or you winning. It's, no, it, it never was. Okay. It never was. <laughs> I think you and I have the same values, mm-hmm. you know, and we want to get to to what we want to get to why we differ on some of the questions of implementation. And forgive me for interrupting you there, but so tell me, tell tell the listeners where you're coming from and what you know, because I'm a, I, I was born in the nineties. I was, I was, you know, just finding my wiener when, when Bush invaded Iraq the second time. Right. So that was my political, so I was, I was, um, how old was I? 19 when the Twin Towers fell. And until then I just had normal liberal politics. I was raised in the suburbs by people I'd call Reagan Democrats, people who had um, children of immigrants, children of the immigrant working class who had become middle class and went from voting for Roosevelt and Kennedy to voting for Nixon and Reagan. Um, 
And I reacted against that in high school, so I was more to the left of that. By the time I went to mm -hmm. college, um, I remember supporting Bill Bradley in the 2000 Democratic primary. Some of our listeners, well, that will take them back as it takes me back. Um, but I had sort of normal liberal politics. Then the Twin Towers fall. Okay, we all rallied around the flag. We all, to some extent, supported Afghanistan or, or you know, maybe we at least supported getting bin Laden whatever that meant. But then with the turn to the Iraq war, that was a radicalizing event for me. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, who had always just been an esthete, who had just been reading people like Harold Bloom and Camille Paglia. You were in the Grand Hotel Abyss. I was in the Grand Hotel Abyss. And I was shook loose from that by the lead up to the Iraq war. I started reading Noam Chomsky. I started reading Edward Said. I started reading Tariq Ali. Howard Zinn. I never could get into Zinn. Now, there's a guy with a very simplistic worldview, if you ask me. I even thought that then. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, he's he is just the kind of like populist anarchist, uh, like so. I became more of a Stalinist. <laughs> I became someone who thought there has to be some more organized way to achieve mm -hmm. justice that's not this. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I'm watching Christopher Hitchens, who I admired so of course, much, of course. make his neoconservative turn. I think we need um, another Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, that would be nice. Right or left, really? I don't. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. he he was both. Yeah. Um, so um, it was really the accent, though. Um, <laughs> his wonderful debates with uh, with with anti-war leftists. Yeah. Uh, where he would address the who's like, please, comrade, that's beneath you. Um, but <laughs> but uh, so I'm radicalized, and this is when I get on the internet for the first time too, because yeah. up until the age of eighteen, I'd never gone online. Uh oh. I completely analog world, and I get into the digital world, and I start blogging, and I start reading these left-wing blogs. When I went to graduate yeah. school, there was a professor who I might use that word for, um, whose name I won't mention. That I, I kind mm, of professor uh, yeah. uh, that I kind of gravitated toward a little bit. And then when Bush was out of office, and uh, and it seemed like it was okay to be anti-war, and Obama came in, I checked out. I checked. I checked in. I checked back into mm -hmm. Grand Hotel Abyss mm -hmm. and became an esteet again. And I came out of this Stalinism, mm -hmm. and I wrote a doctoral dissertation defending so, art. And so you, yeah, you were in you were in an anti-war, um, hard left orientation as an American citizen towards the Bush administra administration's mm -hmm. interventionist policies from '03 to 08? Yeah, but what that had the effect of doing was it it, it radiated all the way back to the point where you say, well, the the what we did in Yugoslavia was illegitimate. Okay, you know um, the whole the whole Cold War was illegitimate. Mm -hmm. South America, South America, yeah. which that's true. By the way, the left is right about South America yeah. for the most part. Though the the thing they're wrong about is they look at those um, the Marxist regimes with two two rosy of view. So what but, was what was that like from your point of view? And I'm sure you you have you have you know neur neuronal chains. Of critique and, and 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 militancy and righteousness developed from that era, discerning the behaviors of the Bush administration, of the neocons, discerning their hypocrisy and their their uh, brutality. What were they doing? Like, who were these figures, and what were your views on on uh, American on American values such as global leadership, security, and the spread of democracy? Well, I was against, I was against it. I thought it was a euphemism for the brutal opening of capital markets, the implantation of uh, 
of, of just onerous forms of um, extraction of debt from the third world, of putting in sweatshops, you know, the, the maquiadoras of South America, um, the way in which sex trafficking and, and drug trafficking overlaps with some of these interventions in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and places like that. Um, so to me, democracy was just some bullshit word that people threw around to, to cover up this criminal enterprise. It was a veil. Yeah, it was a veil. And I had a special contempt, and I wasn't alone. This was the, in the middle of I was in. We had special contempt, not so much for the George W. Bushes or Donald Rumsfelds or Dick Cheney's, who just sort of, um, they, they owned a certain swaggering uh, bravado and, uh, and a kind of Nietzschean will to power. I remember when uh, the Iraq Museum got looted of its antiquities and Rumsfeld said, well, you know, that's what happens in a free society. Uh, you know, something like that was almost refreshing. It was precisely the Samantha Powers's that I had the most contempt for mm -hmm. because it seemed that she provided this moral rhetorical cover right. for these maneuvers. Like your character, Mr. Leiden in Class of 2000. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I wouldn't he have made the that kernel of the but... kernel of the essence of the, of the moral justification for... For immoral actions, and so how 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 did that view of democracy as a veil, the hypocrisy of of American liberalism and the blunt force of its foreign policy, how did that carry into the MAGA era? And it's so interesting how those those things translate and transform into yeah. the MAGA era, and they split into left and right splinters. Right. I've seen right. With that same guiding principle of the the lie of democracy, yeah, the lie of global institutions, mm -hmm. and a figure like Putin can it makes it so makes all so much sense now that a figure like Putin could play into that and right disseminate disseminate information which it, which inflames those beliefs and antagonisms and yeah and and upends faith in the American system from within and yeah it it's makes. Was was Hillary right all the time? But how did those things? How are you reflecting on how those things transformed into the 2015, 2020s? So for me, um, so my view, you know, to the extent that it sounded like I was even defending Trump earlier, and I don't know if I was or I wasn't, but I guess I, I I actually do think that there's probably how can I put this? I think that um, the people involved in foreign policy in his administration had more continuity with prior administrations than is advertised. So I don't believe this stuff about Putinist fifth columns in the Trump White House. I'm more of a person who sees Trump in the continuity of American government. And I, I'm not like, uh, I've never been especially panicked about him, but I've also, as a skeptic of American power, it's not that I support him either. So I've never been a Trump panic guy, but to the extent that yeah, there is, neither. Um, this MAGA movement of, you know, Steve Bannon and, yeah. and Posobiec and Beatty, these people you mentioned, yeah. who seem to have, I mean, um, anti-Americanism yeah. is a, not a left phenomenon or a right phenomenon, it's both. I mean, you hear, especially, in, I think my theory is they, this left and the right crossed in the 60s, where you have the Maoist so movement. this goes back. Oh, this goes way back. The horseshoe theory? It's a little like the horseshoe theory, though I could talk about totalitarian yeah. centrism someday too. We should, but <laughs> and we shouldn't degrade a, a nice symbol like the horseshoe, like the with horseshoe. The vile extremist politics. Right. But right, in the 60s is where you get the 
the the left adopts this aesthetic critique of America that I think comes from the reactionary tradition. It comes from people like Pound and Heidegger and Eliot, this mm. sense of America and, you know, to the point, international Jewry, as they thought of it, as some kind of inorganic encrustation on these organic rooted cultures. Mm. And I've never had any sympathy for that at all because I... Um, well, I mean, let me just put this really bluntly. I don't speak the language, practice the religion, or live in the homeland of my forefathers. So mm -hmm. I don't have anything to say about rooted anything. Uh, you know, all of my culture is by adoption. So um, so I have never had any sympathy for that kind of thing. And I didn't even like it then. I didn't like the way that uh, opposition to Bush's wars often got turned into, uh, oh, America, and it's, it's fat uh, people at strip malls. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I hate that kind of thing. Um, so I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> well, we uh we were talking about we were talking about oh, yeah. Sorry, I, I caught back up. Uh this right. I went into a, I went into a reverie when you started talking about fat people in shopping malls. I felt like I was home. <laughs> right there, yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean I feel quite nostalgic for yeah, that. I um, just got hungry for a quarter pounder. <laughs> right, right. Which uh, I've lived off this week. Go ahead. Orange Julius. Um drinking Pepsi. <laughs> But right, this this anti-Americanism from the right, and uh, yeah, you know, and and well, I'll tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing what's happening now with this invasion? Though mm -hmm. it's stunning with the shift in regard for globalists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, they. That they might have been responsible the whole time. And that the fact that they know things that we don't know. I mean, that's really... And this MAGA critique has never been never been more jumbled. It's never been more incohate and, um, and fractured. Yeah. And, oh, they're and, all over the and place. And dangerous. Yeah. They've never been more vulnerable for anti-American critiques. Yeah. There's so much on tape in the past three months about them belittling this threat. Right. About them belittling the Ukrainian people, about them belittling NATO, um, NATO security. Mm -hmm. What did they think? What did they think was going to happen? Did they think Russia was an ally? No. Did they really think that that was possible? So here's, did, here's what I think they were. I think the Bannon wing had a plan, which was <clears throat> I might call the reverse Nixon. The planning. So the plan, <laughs> Steve plan, um, which was, and I'm going to go out of my way to be charitable and generous. I understand the idea here, which is you want to separate Russia from China. And I actually think doing that somehow makes sense. So their thought was we would at least live peaceably with Russia and focus the energy on China. I think in the event this is going to prove naive, um, I don't know if there's a way to do... If there was a way to do that, there's probably not now, not with Putin in power. Yeah, the martial culture, which we just got out of a multi-decade war with and fight proxy wars with, that's going to be the nation we're going to ally with and not the largely largely um, docile... Um, um, giant to the east with that's a non-martial culture and, and we're economically intertwined with well that's, right 
I mean, there's where some of the naivete was. And again, I think there's some justification for maybe becoming less economically intertwined with I agree. With, and I think Europe needs to be become needs to become less economically intertwined with Russia. I think mm-hmm. that we we risk being captive to these powers mm-hmm. if we're so economically intertwined. So like I said, I'm going out of my way to be generous to find the kind of rational kernel of the of the Trumpist policies. Um, but no, they're totally jumbled. To prepare for this podcast, I listened to Steve Bannon's podcast earlier this mm-hmm. morning, and he was all over the place. Yeah, he's um, he's like a stuck pig. He's like, it, it, he just echoed who he was talking to. So he would have people on who were very neocon, yeah. very traditional, we got to get Russia. Amazing. There were people criticizing Biden for not saying we'd put in troops. And he was like, yeah, he's totally weak. And then he'd have other people on who would talk about, well, you know, Ukraine's just uh, basically just the, the West or Russia, so who cares? And he would agree with that. It's like, you you know, it's, it's it, the, he, there's no credibility there. That is, it's amazing. I can't yeah. tell. I don't know if people, I've been in this world for a little while, both sides of it, reading, because this is it, right? Like, what do we do about Russia? What do we do about China? These are... There's an idea that the Democrats want to make Russia the enemy, that Republicans want to make China the enemy for different reasons. Um, this is this is a remarkable this is a remarkable turn of events. But what let's say let's say let's say this the people the very people who I'm casting as responsible in this situation who were ultimately correct in their assessment of of, of global risks and adversaries, let's say this goes wrong, mm-hmm. or this is seized in a way to further in their domestic and international agenda, mm-hmm. which well, is probably probably what's going to happen. Um, but what could go wrong? Because notice that we haven't, like within the past three days, I haven't experienced any sort of paranoia of like authoritarianism in the U.S., of bio-authoritarianism, of the use of COVID to to um, regiment our population. Yeah, I haven't thought about that at all. Right, I've just been <laughs> thinking about our glorious, responsible um, <laughs> leaders who will sanction Putin and the Ukrainian people fighting for their freedom and the glory of 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 Western liberal values. I haven't been thinking about any of it. Right. So where could this where could this go wrong? Where could this, yeah? It's a good How question. How could this be seized? And this should be focused on too. Yes. Um, and I'm I'm really paranoid about all that stuff, as you know, um, <laughs> in general. But I haven't worried about that in this situation. Isn't it amazing? This is yeah. amazing. It's well, such an amazing. <laughs> so rarely does do ideological trenches get disrupted and yeah, unbelievable. Yes, and I I feel it's interesting too that I don't think they've done much to suppress online discourse the way they did with COVID or the election. Um, in fact, we're the free West. Because we're the free West. I mean, I don't mean to look. Uh, uh, God bless and good luck to the Ukrainians. But there's a lot of propaganda for them that seems to be a little bit over the top circulating. <laughs> that's not being cast as misinformation. Naturally. Um, and and whatever, that's fine. That's war. I'm not naive. Um, but uh, so, you know, there's, there's that question. Do I think that this is going to be seized on? I don't see how they do it. I mean, what I heard that I, I thought somebody said that was interesting, one of these neoliberals on Twitter, it might've been Noah Smith. Said, Love Noah Smith. Yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent. Uh, I mean, he's 
He's as good as it's going to get from them. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's a smart guy. And he said, because <laughs> today, because the day we're recording, Viktor Orban came out and denounced Putin. Um, so basically what they're trying to do, it, it's it's kind of amusing, is we're trying to cancel him. <laughs> we're trying to cancel him <laughs> into not doing this by leveraging this like global shame. Mm -hmm. Like even the Chinese seem kind of cold to this. Mm -hmm. And so if you just see, look, you don't have the world here, the, nobody's behind you, even people you think are ideologically close to you aren't behind you. Um, because, like, I again, I was listening to Bannon, and even he felt it necessary to say a couple of times, look, what he's doing is wrong, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, I don't really hear any, I, I hear a few, but very marginal people online <laughs> I don't hear many people giving any kind of full-throated endorsement to Putin, no matter their ideological position. Well, I think the far right in the in the United States. To a point, though, I saw that 4chan had turned against Putin. People were putting up posts last night about 4chan was... Uh, well, if 4chan turns against you. <laughs> yeah, and people were saying, well, they've obviously been infiltrated by the CIA and everything, and, uh, and that's probably true to a point, uh, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't think we have to worry about pro-Putinism. But I don't see that the government is doing that much either um, to the populace, at the populist level. I'll tell you one way this could go wrong is if the sanctions stuff blows back onto the American economy mm -hmm. and that creates more social unrest or, you know, support. Well, you know, and the Russians are going to mount cyber attacks on us after this. Right, there's that. Yeah. So, yeah, and that could go very badly because that's not just, it's not just like your personal internet going down. That could be the electricity grid or something like that. Well, hey, as long as we got Clintons and the the powers and the and the crystals and the, <laughs> the frums and who else? Who else? Just, just name a few names. Uh, I mean, those are those are the names. Those are some big ones that, uh, that really the bushes that give me chills. Who um, else? Come on, <laughs> who else is a um? Who else? Well, I mean, it should be said that there are people who are still allied with the Republican Party that you mentioned. I think Evil Empire and Mike um, that are Mike Pompeo mm -hmm. and uh, Rick Grinnell. Um, there is like a neocon wing of MAGA. Mm -hmm. um, so, like I said, I think this this idea of our polarization is a little exaggerated or a little bit confined to the culture war. To the extent that the 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 operation of the American global American global enforcement values and administration of financial, commercial, and military. Um, status quo that there's a consensus that is not being disrupted by activist elements of each each party yeah 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 i think you i think you Good. saw that yeah <laughs> to a point yeah i mean it's i mean the, the stability of america is the best and the worst thing about it. the whole point of america is that you know i mean they didn't use these terms in the 18th century but the whole point was that you wouldn't have a fascist or a communist country yeah yeah it is stunning. It this is for me. This is a display of American influence and power mm -hmm. wherever this goes. Yeah, but just the response in the last four days that you, at just at certain times, John. It's so easy. Is it's almost a tradition for 
an, a thinking young American to turn against his or her own country. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a rite of passage. It is, yeah. But it's stunning that we're allowed to do that on one hand. Mm-hmm. And that, but there are moments when you, you think about what we're able to do, but then, but then you really think about the fact that this United States in the 20th century, I think within the eight or 90 year span, took down three nascent empires, mm-hmm. the Germans, the Japanese, and the Soviets. Mm-hmm. And that many of the people who did that work are still around mm-hmm. or were in a second generation of people who were taught by that generation that took down three um, nascent empires to become have hegemony over the globe. And then the idea, the idea, and this gets pushed by Beatty and those guys and in the left in their own way, like this idea that we're, we're going to, how would you say, um, relinquish it or we're incompetent. Yeah. To, we can't administer it or extend it. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to give it to a, a, another for, foreign government. Right. Even though w- of what it took to gain it. Yeah. But you, then you realize the true people who have their ha- their hand on power in this country, the, the elites of the American government, they're not going to give it, they're not going to let that happen easily. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. Some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. They argue you pushed us and now don't be surprised that you've got a backlash. If you can find one Polish citizen who agrees, I'll be glad to take that seriously. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. President Yeltsin, in return for Ukraine getting rid of all of its nuclear weapons and sending them to Russia, signed an agreement with me and the then-president of Ukraine saying that Russia would always respect Ukraine's territorial integrity. Ukraine and the NATO alliance have built a strong partnership. Russia's leadership is challenging truths that only a few weeks ago seemed self-evident. Helping Ukraine move toward NATO membership is in the interest of every member in the alliance. That in the 21st century, the borders of Europe cannot be redrawn with force. Right. There's many different levers extremely mm-hmm. powerful levers that the United States still has in its its possession and it is able to pull. Um, yeah. And it's debatable about whether anybody really wants to face what that would involve because it might end the... The world? No, but the regime of cheap consumer goods that sustains the United States' prosperity. Um, I mean, I think there's this idea... And this is actually a big difference that I see in the far right, the MAGA right from the left. The left was always very clear that America is going to have to give up some of its way of life because it's predicated on injustice if we end this global capitalist regime. The MAGA people never tell you that. They have some idea that we'll bring all the manufacturing back, we'll pull out of all these treaties, we'll decouple from China and Russia. Um, And some of that's good. I mean, energy independence, totally for it, Um, stuff like that. Um, And I think, if anything, the environmental movement took a bit of a hit this week, too, because of their anti-nuclear 
crusade that put uh, Germany into the thrall of Russia. Mm. Um, so, you know, so I'm for some of that, but they never tell you there's going to be costs and there would. Um, so you have to be willing to think about what would I give up if my principles became real? And I think people aren't very good at thinking about that. Yeah. Would you be listening to this podcast if the global American empire came to an end? What a poignant touching and <laughs> disturbing question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, man. So, so and, yeah. Anyway, my point, I, I don't think I ended the story of my ideological trajectory, which is hollow that, men. Um, Anyway, I came out of the Stalinism, I returned to my aestheticism, and I'm still in the process of uh, reconfiguring my own, my own belief system. Let me ask you about what you've been writing on your Tumblr blog, because mm -hmm. you had a productive week. Mm -hmm. And how, so we've, we set the stage for, we set the stage for maybe talking about this piece you wrote about uh, uh, Milan Kudara. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the unbearable lightness of being? Uh, not to be mistaken with uh, with uh, uh, the beloved uh, uh, toilet to toilet publication, the 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 unbearable lightness of peeing. <laughs> it's popular in, popular in Canada as a as a bathroom book. It's funny because you haven't read that book, have you, Sam? Being, no. being, not being. Yeah. There's a famous central image of that book of a woman on a toilet wearing a bowler hat. I haven't, I have not read The Unbearable Lightness of Being since I was a teenager, but I remember the chick on the toilet. Yeah. Anyway, go on. You're talking about me. Yeah. So you make an argument in this Tumblr post that Milan Kudera, he talks about the novel as being the very image of Europe. The novel as being the precious essence of the European spirit. The novel as being this great unit of European idealism where you find the individual. Mm -hmm. So something completely different from totalitarianism and, and, sing, and, and has its origins in Europe. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? And he was writing as a Czech writer after the fall of communism. And while the world still cared about these European borders and didn't see them as arbitrary and something to play with. Yeah, so, um, right. So I'm quoting a, a piece he wrote, his speech upon receiving the Jerusalem Prize in the mid-'80s. So just before communism had fallen, he was a Czech dissident. Um, he had left what was then Czechoslovakia, moved to France, began writing in French, and he saw himself in a European lineage of fiction, uh, particularly ironic, metafictional, playful, comic forms. He saw the novel as an essentially comical and ironic form. So he loved Cervantes, Lawrence Stern, Rabelais, um, Diderot. Uh, and David Sedaris. David Sedaris. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of his, his theories, and if you've never read him, and, and you, our listeners, this, is be a, this will be a generational test because Kundera was inescapable if you were a serious bookish young person from 
let's say the eighties and the, through the nineties. Um, I read him and as a teenager, um, uh, I think I was reading him to impress a girl who had read him. I mean, he was huge. And then he sort of faded away because he was responding to these geopolitical events that after 9-11 went into the background when, you know, the focus turned to middle, the Middle East and mm -hmm. uh, political Islam. And so I was got to thinking about him. I had read The Art of the Novel, which is a very interesting nonfiction book that contains essays by, by him. And in many ways, he really is just an essayist. Even his novels are sort of composed of essays or comprised of essays, however that goes. Um, and he, yes, he thinks of the novel as this essentially, he doesn't use the word liberal, but I would use the word liberal form, a form in which the individual can pit what he calls levity against gravity mm -hmm. against the gravity of mm -hmm. self-serious lumbering totalitarian yeah against balzac and the social realists yeah. and in russia yeah those lumbering um um humorless mm -hmm. idealists yeah similar to nabokov's theories you know like nabokov he was concerned with kitsch he thought totalitarianism was this kitschy sentimental moralism they that use had, that word kitsch yeah he used the word kitsch oh i don't know what, what he used in Czech or French, but in English it comes out kitsch. Kitsch. Yeah. I only so. thought that word was 30 years old. <laughs> no, I think it's older than that. Um, I think it's a very 20th century word. I think kitsch was always the antonym of the cheap of modernism. Yeah. Cheap. Clement 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 Greenberg wrote mm. avant-garde versus kitsch mm. in the 40s. It's the antonym of, of uh, the avant-garde. So why, why does this matter? <laughs> Good question, Sam. Um, so the reason it mattered, I got to thinking about this, because if you read on in my post, I, I start quoting one of our great novelists, uh, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. And it's striking because Toni Morrison, one of her most famous essays written right around the same time, is called Unspeakable Things Unspoken, the Afro-American Presence in American Literature. And you would think from that title that she's mainly going to write about American literature, of course. But she takes a digression in that mm -hmm. essay. To An interesting digression. Interesting digression, specifically to denounce Kandara, his art of the novel. She takes time to put this checkboy in his place. <laughs> yeah. This um, fucking check boy right in his place. And I always, and I had read these two essays, you know, late teens, early 20s, yeah. around the same time. And I remember thinking that was a strange. She said, I'll get my red army boots and stomp your fucking <laughs> face, Kundera. Shut the <laughs> fuck up about your fucking novel ideas. And there is a way in which Morrison is, you know, amenable to Marxism in ways that, that somebody like Kundera is. She's not. a Marxist. So. But that's not the, the essence of her critique in this moment. What in, is the essence of her critique? The essence of her critique is that he's Eurocentric. She says that he had the liberty to become a European, you know, from being an Eastern European, a peripheral European, uh, perhaps even from the point of view of an actual West European chauvinist, some kind of Oriental subject being from the East of Europe. But he gets to emigrate, he gets to write in French, he gets to quote Diderot, and he gets to be the exponent of this individualism, universalism, and this socially irresponsible irony that I think she associates with a kind of Eurocentric anxiety about the novel becoming a more diverse form. It's a conservative turn, uh, Kundera's. Yeah, I think that's how she sees it, yeah. 
but it's a conservative turn into universality that he has no right to to uh, spray all over. Yeah, it's a spurious universality, universality in the an ideology in the Marxist sense, which is when um, when a a class does something for itself that it claims is doing for everyone. He's he's speaking for the world, and just to be fair to Kundera. For all his going on about the novels of European form, he was quite friendly to Garcia Marquez and to Derek yeah, Walcott. So he, yeah, he seemed like, like a friendly that. guy, and he, but he just believes something. Yeah. And it's politically it has it has resonances and, and uh, potencies in his context against, against totalitarianism. Yeah. A universal freedom, uh, a place for the individual, giving credit to, the, to Europe as the as a place of genesis for that. Mm -hmm. So Toni Morrison responds to Kundera in her essay, Unspeakable Things Unspoken, The Afro-American Presence in American Literature. She has a paragraph in which she writes, for the present, turbulence seems not to be about the flexibility of a canon, its range among and between Western countries, but about its miscegenation. What's that, miscegenation? Yeah, racial mixing. Okay. The word it's is- actually Okay. Here's, here's Morrison. The word is informative here, and I do mean its use. A powerful ingredient in this debate concerns the incursion of third world or so-called minority literature into a Eurocentric stronghold. And that Eurocentric stronghold, Morrison, is, Kundera is reinforcing. Correct? Yeah, I think she... <clears throat> I think she, in some ways, wouldn't necessarily disagree with his view of the novel as having this ironic capacity that her her tradition of the novel is very different from his. Um, I don't think she'd privilege those metafictionists in the way that he does. Um, I think she prefers something like Dostoevsky or something, as in fact do I. But I think she thinks that um, his need to make a great show of making this form express its fidelity to Europe is just this kind of um, anxiety about miscegenation, about the the mixing of races, is is, uh, and and I think from her point of view, he's given up his particularity as a as a Czech citizen to become this French citizen because that's some idea of going from the particular to the universal, and he sort of as a nominally white man has had the privilege to do that, and he's he sort of participates in this spurious universality that he calls Europe. Interesting. So it's at on one level it's the mixing of literary forms but that's a that's analogous to the mixing of of racial genetics. Yeah, Her, his concern to keep it pure and european is something that gives her this sense that he has this anxiety about racial mixing. And in that sense, I think we could read her as charging him with a certain hypocrisy. You know, who, um, where is all this tolerance and where is all this irony? Individual expression. If, yeah, if it has to be European, if you have to pledge allegiance to Europe. But by critiquing his his literary stance in this way, is she critiquing his his politics, his um, imperial politics? Well, that's precisely what what started to worry me when I when the news of this week made me think of this these two essays which I read when I was young, because later in her essay, she goes on to discuss 
thinking of herself as a black writer and thinking of some of her characters as, um, and I think I even mentioned this in our Gnosticism episode as metaphysically black. And I, to, to me, her, insofar as her critique of Kundera is hypocrisy, mm-hmm. that these liberal values sort of halt at the frontier of Europe, then I can accept them. But insofar as it becomes a critique of the idea of universalism or the idea of the right of the individual to resist collective essences, that's what gives me pause. And so I quoted a a later part of her essay in which she discusses her own relationship, her fiction's relationship to race that that made me a little bit nervous. Perhaps a clue. Yeah. Quote, Morrison writes, quote, the question of what constitutes the art of a black writer, for whom that modifier is more search than fact, has some urgency. In other words, other than melanin and subject matter, what in fact may make me a black writer? Other than my own ethnicity, what is going on in my work that makes me believe it is demonstrably inseparable from a cultural specificity that is Afro-American? Yeah, and so notice what she dismisses there. She says, the fact that my skin is black, the fact that I write about black people, and the fact that I am black by ethnicity, none of that makes my work black. There's something she calls cultural specificity that does it. And to me, that suggests some kind of essentialism. To me, that suggests some kind of collective, essential, racial, ethnic identity that is spiritual, that is more even than just, you know, the traditions of a people, but is something deeper than that, more idealistic than that. And that's where her critique of Kundera begins to worry me, because while she's right to object I, in my view, to his insistence on putting the word Europe onto the words individualism and irony, she's kind of reinforcing those kinds of collective identities by insisting on, um, because let me, let me back up. So the listener will object, listener, you're, you're, I will object in your stead that mm-hmm. who, who are Sam and I to, uh, to adjudicate black identity. Objection. Uh, and that's, that's a fair critique, but what I'm after here is the philosophical point, which is that what Morrison seems to be saying is the writer ultimately is responsible to some metaphysical essence of the group to which he or she belongs. You don't buy that. No, I think that's, I think that's a troubling idea. I think that's even more troubling than Kundera's possible hypocrisy because at least he has the the values right. Well, what if that group of people is Russians? Well, that is where I took the post. And I and I don't know, maybe the are... Russian people, the people who won World War II, the people who've endured encroachments their whole history, the people who survived, yeah. the people of great spirit and orthodox Christianity, the people who who are, are tough and can survive anything, the Russian people, the Russian nation. What is? What if that's the cultural specificity, the guiding spirit? Would well, Morrison be rooting for Putin? Well, that's the, the well, hold on. <laughs> no, wait, let, me, let me, we'll get back to that inflammatory question. But, uh, it, but um, let's say you're right. The Russian people made great sacrifices. 
they've been the victims of history in many cases, as have African descended people in the United States. And so it feels a little bit heartless to say you can't speak on behalf of a collective identity when that collective identity has been the victim of history. And yet I persist in thinking there's some danger in this kind of essentialism. And the thing that reminded me of Morrison's conflict with Kundera was that I had been reading up on Alexander Dugan. And Dugan. Dugan. Um, and I, this was a name I'd heard, uh, you know, this is a name, this is a name we've heard. Yeah. This is a, this is a name. This is a guy who's, um, who represents something ominous and, and, and broods and broods and haunts and, and provokes and threatens the, the, the rules of, of liberalism in, in the world. Yes, he's been known as Putin's brain. Uh, I don't know to what extent that's, you know, empirically true. But he appears to be the major Russian philosopher right now. And he, <clears throat> and I don't, he's a brilliant man, speaks a lot of languages, wrote, wrote like a 12 or 24 volume series on world history. Uh, he derives, he's kind of a Russian Heidegger. Uh, I don't claim to know all the ins and outs of his philosophical system. The fourth, the fourth way. The fourth way, yeah. He's, he fourth posits, turning? I think it's I think it's different, but maybe it's related. Yeah, he posits a fourth political theory. So he says liberal. Well, he says we know fascism failed. We know communism failed. He predicts liberalism will fail. So he posits a fourth way. Though many people look at what he's positing and say, well, that actually is just fascism again. Um, I don't claim to know the ins and outs of his system. There is a, a Canadian philosopher named Michael Millerman, who I think was run yeah, out of Millerman, yeah. Canadian academe. For He's a Straussian. Yeah. Millerman is not the villain. I think uh, he could be made out to be. I think he is a Straussian and not a fascist. Um, but he is an exegete of Dugan and has written well and spoken well. You know, the guys like that, they like culture too. Yeah. They want, they want to talk about their tastes and their... Right. They want to appreciate maybe even a Lynch film or... Yeah. Or... Um, avant-garde jazz mm -hmm. they want you to know through aesthetic sophisticated aesthetic appreciation that they're they're human and and have sensibilities and yeah and <laughs> <laughs> uh the millerman said they kind of use it weirdly it's kind of a weird it's a weird distant appreciation it's instrumental appreciation i found with some of those guys yeah that's true i think on all Cause, sides because they're not right? they're not bohemians no no, and that's I think fine. Does that. yeah. all, all is well, except but, for their uh, except for their subversive ideas. Go ahead, <laughs> right? Explain them more. Um, but Please. but Millerman, I I do read Millerman as a Straussian and not as a as a Duganist. I just think he's an exegete of Dugan, and and um, and, and he said he you know when he talks about Dugan, he does a lot of disavowals about I'm not saying I don't support blah blah. blah. Um, and I don't. I think it's unjust that he was run out of academia for for writing about Dugan. Um, and he's also written about Heidegger and Richard and Derrida and Richard Rory and everything. So anyway, my point is, I was reading up on Dugan. I was reading an interview with Dugan, and it's kind of hard when you read interviews with Dugan because you've been told about this great philosophic sophistication, but then in his interviews, he just sounds like some some man right wing radio. Uh, <laughs> Dugan? Yeah, you know, he's like, oh, the BLM and the LGBT and blah, blah, it doesn't feel very sophisticated. But his theory, if I could put it most briefly, 
is this kind of ethnic philosophy. He takes Heidegger's idea of the being in the world, of the Dasein, that you know, we are each embedded in this manifold of of sensory and and relations and then the disclosure of being this kind of anti-rationalist. It's a neoconservative neoconservative Buddhism. <laughs> There's something about it to that. Yeah, yeah. There's this it's stupid. And uh, and on Heidegger you know, I think there's useful ways of reading Heidegger. I think what Heidegger says about aesthetics uh, is important. I wouldn't, I'm not into canceling anybody, any philosophy. You got to read it all. But Dugan's idea is that each people has its essence. So he says something, so I quote this interview on Tumblr when he says something like, we need African values for the Africans and Chinese values for the Chinese and Muslim values for the Muslims and European values for the European. And he says that, did I read that right, Sam? You're looking at yeah, the computer. Yeah, perfect. Okay. If you become Russian, please become Russian. You will share with us tradition, conservative society, monarchy, authoritarianism for the best or worst. Oy. So there's a couple problems there. <laughs> One is that list is bizarre. So he says African, and then he says... Muslim, and then he says Chinese. So we have the name of a continent, we have the name of a civilization, and we have the name of a religion. So what's the unit of measurement here? At what point do you become a people? Yeah. You know, Muslim is not an ethnicity. Chinese is not continental. Yeah. African encompasses right. Arabs and, and Sub-Saharan Africans. Is there a consistent well, vessel of yes. identity? It seems like a completely flawed idea here to me. Well, and when people believe this, man, when people believe this type of stuff, because it sounds good, even some of the Rastafaris believe this. Sure. You know, you know and I, I, I love the Rastafari. <laughs> you would be amazed at how much Rastafari music I've heard in my life. And if anybody want to, if anyone want to challenge me on that, just write me an email and then you come see me. <laughs> And we can listen to it together, and we, I look you right in the eyes yeah. while we're listening to it, and I'll, and I'll sing all the words, <laughs> and I'll dance to it in a way that might make you feel funny. Um, <laughs> but the problem with this, the problem with this philosophy, man, is be, people is it, you, it moves into nationalism, and if I had a, if I was living, I, I like a little nationalism, I like a little nationalism. Administered by a liberal, yeah, I prefer liberal nationalism. Right, I think that liberal nationalism can it's be. It's probably beneficial. the best yeah. in history. Um, FDR, um, Ronald Reagan, LBJ, like a nationalism that doesn't depend on any idea of ethnicity. Exactly. Yeah, and depends precisely on inalienable universal. Yeah. Categories. Right. Um, that can be expressed into productivity and mm -hmm. and, and purpose. Right. Um, irregardless of ethnicity yeah. or religion. Yeah, precisely. Um, so I would prefer like a liberal nationalism, but th this moves into this question of nationalism. So you see guys on the right, on the American far right, and they get they run with some of this stuff. Yeah. They get so confused. Mm -hmm. And if you take, you take the Bannon crew or... Um, even some of these, what are the West Coast Straussians, some of these Claremont guys, mm -hmm. the Millerman crew, mm -hmm. or you take even Teal and his acolytes. Yeah. And I say, okay, it's so the nationalism. It's just like, okay, I guess tradition, hierarchy is real. Mm -hmm. 
rule the best, but like rule within a conservative order. Yeah. Top-down governance, mm -hmm. certain forms of authoritarianism. Yeah. And then you get, so you get on this, this wing of the, the American right, you get a, a meaningful portion of them. Like ultimately, um, ultimately supporting monarchism. Something or, like that. Yeah. Caesarism. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of monarchism. Yeah. BAP and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, Zero HP Lovecraft and yeah. all those boys. Mm -hmm. So they, they sort of roll into a monarchism. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, it, there's no other way for their preliminary ideas to develop yeah. but into sort of a monarchy. Right. It, but then it comes out of this primary appeal to nationalist spirit yeah. and, and units within a nationalist collective. Mm-hmm. Bannon wants to talk about the citizen, which mm -hmm. is strong and persuasive, and mm -hmm. that's inclusive nationalism, fine. Bannon is, you know, he he gets into his own confusions, but ultimately you're, he's conjoined with the aforementioned agents who, who move this thing into a monarchical, authoritarian, American nationalism. So suddenly you end up at the most, the most anti-American... Yeah, thing conceivable, which is rule by one man, rule by king. The very definition of a, of a republic is killing a king in the West right. for common law. Right. So you, you roll into this this humiliating, paradoxical position through which you can be seduced and destabilized by authoritarians like Putin. Yeah. And now you're totally exposed and in over your head, and the nationalism you thought you could profess shows itself as is as, as Built on shallow and and purely destructive like ethnic grievances. Right, right. I mean, they don't even because they call themselves inclusive nationalists now, and I think even to a point probably believe it. Um, I think they've probably gotten away more than their detractors realize to any explicit appeal to whiteness. Uh, Bannon always just says Judeo Christian, which is you know not something that an actual white nationalist would say. Um, because of that, so the old white supremacism was like, well, white people would have a republic and everybody else wouldn't. And they they're they're not they're not saying that. They they're going into like there shouldn't be a republic or um, you know, the degeneracy of parliamentary democracy, these old right-wing themes, and we need some kind of Caesar who has uh, an immediate relation to the people. Which would be if there was some specific cultural spirit like Morrison was talking about or some some um transhistorical ideal idealistic spirit of a nation yeah that weaves in and out of different generations and mm -hmm. and marks its own um and we and we re-embody and 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 channel this yeah. um, however she describes it if that <laughs> If that were the case, then, and if your political philosophy inevitably leads to to monarchy, there's something, there's some error in that computation. Yeah. You fucked up. Right. Somewhere along the line, in one of those components of a ideology, you fucked up, and it turned on you. Yes, and I guess that was to the extent that I, and I hope this post isn't just a polemical piece and was more of a as Morrison says, more of a search than an answer, or however she put it. Um, 
I guess my concern is, does her vision of multiculturalism, where America is made up of these different peoples, each with its own essence, isn't this a little bit similar to this Dugan far right idea? And if so, don't we need to give Kundera another look rather than glibly dismissing him? glibly dismissing. And we can say, we can make the hypocritical critique. We can say, why do you need to call this European? Well, but yeah, but the values, I think we still want to hold on to. And that's what this week brought him to me. But in that sense, so Ukraine right now, the push towards Europe, joining sort of the European spirit, spirit in the Kundera sense. Yeah. We want to be free Ukraine. We want to be democratic Ukraine. Yeah. So maybe there's that joining that Kundera like joining with the uni- European universality, mm-hmm. maybe at its sort of celebrated, exalted best, whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe also, <laughs> maybe there's a, there's multiple conjoinments or or mergers in in of, of spirit and in the struggle to, to to consecrate these things. Maybe what the Ukrainians are doing right now are more in sort of the Republican. English-speaking American spirit that they're merging with in the sense that they're trying and all over the country now with citizens armed, they're trying to kill a king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, that's why we welcome them or that's why you're seeing this proliferation of sentiment and sympathy. I mean, propaganda notwithstanding. Yeah. But there's something of some merger of, of English-speaking Republican spirit in which ones, when a, a tyrant tries to take you over, mm-hmm. you chop his head off. Yeah, and I think that is why you're seeing this this outpouring of sympathy. And I guess I think you mentioned earlier in the episode things that seemed urgent two weeks ago don't seem urgent now. I guess I was trying, trying to thread that needle by saying that if this is the position we're now going to take in Europe, then it is going to, I think, necessitate a rethinking of some of these conversations we've been having about race which to me are a little bit essentialist, which to me are a little bit... So are you speaking to, to the Morrison example? Yeah. Well, I, if you had to stretch that out into contemporary um, debates right now, how would you do that? Or where do you see that? Well, in an earlier Tumblr post this week, I did it in the most inflammatory way possible. So let me just try right, to... Let me get my anti-inflammatory. <laughs> try to recall that. Well, I, there was a... Somebody did it. So Putin made this speech saying something about before the war, as he was launched, his justification for launching the war was something about the historically Russian character of what was now Ukraine. And somebody, I think some dirtbag leftist made a joke that said, oh, Putin's made a land acknowledgement. No wonder the settler colonialists of the American press are against him. And I was like, okay, that's funny, but that's true. I mean, that's, that is what he did. He made a land acknowledgement. He made an acknowledgement of a certain indigeneity, which precedes a democratic government. And mm-hmm. I am not really into land acknowledgement, Sam, to be honest with you, not because our record in, you know, the American government's record in dealing with the Native Americans hasn't been unjust. We all know it has. And, and, and I would be in favor of all sorts of reparation up to and including uh, all sorts of sovereignty, uh, you know, that uh, the different tribes want to have on their own territories. So I'm not a conservative on this issue, but I don't want to delegitimize the state by saying, oh, we're on stolen land. Because everybody's on stolen land. Do you think we grew up out of the ground? Well, that's pure Grand Hotel Abyss behavior. (laughs) 
<laughs> because yeah. I'm in the Grand Hotel. Well, and people I don't... would do that. Yeah, they get yeah. to make the critique, but enjoy the show. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's, yeah, I mean that's and so that type of psychology is. I I think we need to rethink that if we're if we're now going to preach the values of the republic of the of liberal nationalism ah okay then we need to be consistent about that so you're saying well, this is a moment it's good it's good for people's joints you know we'll get people moving a little bit yeah a little bit more <laughs> vigorously in the west but the, the we're once again we're we're defending our our nuts and bolts form of government and mm -hmm. and we're watching that play out against a rival system yeah and it's reminding us about its 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 virtues and values but a similar sort of well, not similar but another another mode of another force which dismantles that our pride and fidelity and our form of government is these land acknowledgments yeah that's what you're saying that's what I'm so saying. you can't use it you can't use it as on you can't put it on a shield in eastern europe and then and then you know metaphorically um, stab yourself you know, within your institution in the United States. Right. Through that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. we need to bring bring this all into line yeah. if we're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's not, you know, aesthetics uh, always interferes with politics. Yeah. Toni Morrison well, is how, yeah. infinitely superior as a novelist to Milan Kundera. Well, you know, you the, know? the American <laughs> democratic pragmatist might say, well, it's useful to use it in Eastern Europe and it's useful to uh, be self-flagellating here in the States. So yeah, well. they're sort of pragmatic. I guess self-flagellating and self-critical aren't the same thing. The land acknowledgement is sheer hypocrisy. Yeah, it's people who aren't going to do anything about these injustices. They're flagellating themselves about. It's an interesting point. I mean, it gets to the point of like this: how this really changes things. This, yeah. and I'm I wanted I was emphasizing that earlier, but we are in ter terrain that is different now. The shadows are cast differently. The light is at a different point on the horizon things which appeared one way now appear a different way yeah and that's what type of historical event we're in right it's, it's uh, another another world-changing historical event for the 2020s well maybe it's time for a liberal nationalism maybe well we're in a period of uh of uh, it's hard to not say anything banal, but we're in a period of, of real ferment and real uncertainty now. So, a lot's going to depend on how it comes out. But I think it's important to to hold on to certain principles. And I think, I hope we can all agree uh, that imperial, aggressive, unprovoked war is uh, it is wrong and is to be challenged. Absolutely.